Well, most people don't know how qualified their airline pilots really are. And all the training that they have to go through and all the simulation that they have to sit in. But every once in a while, we get a glimpse of what these people can really do. On the 7th of November, 2007, Captain Trevor Arnold, a South African pilot for Nationwide, was flying a routine flight from Johannesburg to Cape Town, just a couple of hours, when shortly after takeoff, he experienced some te technical difficulty. To be exact, um, one of the engines of his Boeing 737 fell off the plane. Now, he remembered from flight school that this was a bad sign and that rather than complete the flight, he had one mission, and that was to land the plane with uh, all of the people on board. And so that's what he tried to do. Um, with just one engine having fallen off the plane, though, would have been a good day for Captain Arnold, but there was more going on. Uh, during that event, he also lost hydraulics, meaning that his brakes, most of the hydraulics were gone, so um, his brakes and steering were virtually non-existent. But if it was just for the engine and the hydraulics, it would still have been a good day. Um, unfortunately for him, it was a, a day of very severe weather and dangerously strong winds. And so factoring all of that in, he just tapped into the training of all those simulated nightmare scenarios that had been thrown at him and was able to safely land the plane without anyone even getting injured. And you have to ask yourself, how did he know how to do that? And the answer is because during the training phase, the simulators are not set up for uh, you know, a sunny day with no wind and nothing going wrong and clear skies and all of the engines working. No, there's some sadistic uh, teacher in the background trying to figure out the most nightmare scenario and one of them has got to be one of your engines falls off the plane. And so mist, rain, wind, right engine falling off, all of these things were something that he had been trained for. He had passed these, these little simulated tests so that when the real test came, he was able to prove his ability. Most passengers have no idea about how qualified their pilots are until the skill is proven through a trial by fire. And that's exactly what we see in 1 Peter chapter 1. So turn your Bibles to 1 Peter. When you became a Christian, you were given spiritual resources that you probably don't even know you have. You are far more qualified to handle whatever life throws at you than you probably realize. And the only way you, you notice how qualified you are for that is when you go through the trial by fire. Now, last week we saw that Peter is, after his introduction, he's now blessing God for something. He's blessing God for the, the difficulty that these people are going through. He's writing to Christians that have been scattered from their homeland abroad, and this is a letter being passed around to the various churches of these scattered and, and um, rehomed Christians, and he's telling them to rejoice in God, to, to blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of these difficulties. And so last week, well, the past couple of weeks, we looked at three sources of hope to carry you through trials. You can endure any trial if you know it's temporary and that there's benefit coming at the end of it, right? And so we looked at those three sources of hope. Uh, the first one is your eternal life. Uh, eternal life stems from his mercy. It's according to his great mercy. Your eternal life was started by his action. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
and your eternal life was secured in the past. It was secured through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not through your performance in this life. That was eternal life. Then we saw eternal inheritance, that the inheritance that awaits us, this living hope that awaits us is time-proof and it's theft-proof and there are no catches to it. And then we looked at our eternal security, that not only is our inheritance secure, but we need to be there in order to inherit it. And so God takes responsibility in his power to guard us and keep us until we can inherit that eternal inheritance. So that's what we've been looking at the past couple of weeks. Um, And I left you last week with asking the question, well, if our eternal inheritance is so secure, and if we are being kept by the power of God, then why does he need to test us? If he already knows that you can't fail the test because he's responsible for making sure that you don't. Why are there tests? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Let me read for you from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's our passage this morning, verses 6 and verse 7, when we're going to look at two aspects of trials so that you'll understand their purpose in life. You're just going to find out enough about these tests and trials and difficulties in your life so that you'll know why they are there. And first, we'll just generally look at some particulars of trials that Peter mentions, and then we'll get to the purpose of trials. So firstly, the particulars of trials. If you look at verse 6, when he says, in this you rejoice, the this is referring to the stuff that's just come above. So this inheritance, the security that you have, you can rejoice in this security, even though you're being tested, is what he's saying. So you can rejoice in the security, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Your version might say, um, if it was necessary. Now, before we look at the purposes of the trials, let's define what a trial is. It's one of the particulars, and there may be many definitions, but I'm going to give you the one that's going to work for what Peter's talking about here. Firstly, the uh, the word for trial is often also, uh, the word for test and temptation is the same word in the Greek, periosmos, and it can often just be determined by context. And a little hint is, if it's negative trying to get you to sin, then it's a temptation. That's from Satan or yourself. Then if it's positive, if it's going to have this fruit that we're going to talk about later, then it's from God. Um, to help you. But this is our definition. Um, It is any difficulty that requires God's help for you to respond rightly. So when I talk about trials today, that's what I'm talking about, any difficulty. The scriptures use different words for this, um, like affliction is a common one when you're afflicted by some difficulty, or persecution, that's when it's coming from another person because of your faith. 
or just suffering, just things that happen through disease or life circumstances, so affliction, persecution, suffering, trials, tests, temptations, difficulties, all of these synonyms. And I'm talking about any difficulty that requires God help for you to respond rightly. Trials are all the stuff that happens to you that you wish didn't happen. All the stuff that when it happens, you feel, I don't know the best way to respond here. I need God's help. Anything that requires you to be mature in the faith to respond rightly. This could include little things. Stubbing your toe. Or it could be being late for a meeting that was important. Or losing a client. Or one of my personal favorites, standing in line at the DMV. Uh, you're just waiting there for the paperwork to be done, right? Uh, getting a parking ticket. It could be a trial that you don't want. It can also be more serious. Getting cancer. Getting a divorce. The loss of a job. Arguments with your in-laws. Birth defects. It can be economic hardship. It can be injustice or abuse. It can be loss of a pet. It can be loss of a spouse. And everything in between. So a difficulty is anything that happens because we are in a sin-cursed world where Satan is out to get us, where we have sinful desires in our flesh and we live around other sinners. And, and because of that, there's going to be difficulty in this life that there's not going to be in the next life. And so Peter says, yes, you've got this amazing inheritance waiting for you. And in this you rejoice, even though you're going through these various trials and you're being grieved by them. And so trials come in different shapes and sizes, varying degrees and varying types, as we've seen. Uh, he says in verse 6, you've been grieved by various trials. James also calls it that later, remember? Um, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. There's a whole plethora of degree of trial and length of trial. There are as many types of trials as there are types of pain. It could be an emotional trial. Uh, it could be a, a health trial. It could be a financial trial. It could be a relational trial of some sort, a spiritual trial. And the, the, the length of the trial, it might just be brief. It might be just something you go through shortly, or it might be lifelong. And yet all trials are temporary. He says, in this you rejoice that now for a little while you've been grieved by these various trials. These Christians had only been going through this particular type of persecution for a short time. But no matter how long your persecution is, no matter how long you're suffering, even if it's a lifelong condition that you are dealing with, it's still temporary because it doesn't last into your eternal inheritance. It's for a little while. And yet, another aspect particular of trials we see here is that it, they are grievous. Just because they're temporary doesn't mean that they're not painful. And I don't mean to minimize whatever it is that you're going through by saying, don't worry, it's just temporary. Well, yeah, but I mean, some... Some trials can last a whole lifetime. People get paralyzed when they're young and they're paralyzed for the rest of their life. Or they're born with some sort of defect that's going to hinder them for the rest of their life. Or you lose a spouse and, and that goes on for the rest of your life. I mean, there's a lot of things that the, these trials are there. And so I don't mean to minimize that by saying, oh, it's just for a little while. He, he says specifically, you've been grieved by these various trials. Even though it's just for a little while, you've been grieved by them. 
I don't want you to ever feel ashamed that you're going through something difficult. There's, sometimes you get these little Christian bubbles where people, they have this idea that if God is happy with you, if you're walking with the Lord and you have faith in him, he's going to bless you. And everything in your life is going to be blessed and you'll be healthy and all your relationships will be good and, and you'll have enough money in the bank and everything's going to go well. And, and that's very dangerous because it's, firstly, it's not what the Bible says at all as we're seeing in our takes right now. Um, in fact, the Bible says the opposite. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. But more than that, it creates a culture among those Christians where they don't want to admit that they're suffering. They don't want to tell people that I'm, I'm, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling anxious. I'm struggling. I, I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. I, I don't know how I'm going to cope with this loss. I have no idea what to do now that I've lost my job. I don't know how I'm going to cope with the, the hours my boss wants me to work. Whatever it is, you don't want to even admit it because people say, oh, well, then you must have a little faith because God must be punishing you. No, not at all. It, it, everybody goes through these trials, even Christians. And they're grievous, and it's okay to be grieved by them. Your emotions may be taxed. Your body may be exhausted. Your spiritual reserves may feel depleted. That's why God calls us to be in churches. We all have different spiritual gifts and we're all going through different things and we can help each other during those times. So, so please, be very free to share that. Never, ever feel bad about it. It's in the Bible. It's normal. The difference is you need to always keep your suffering in perspective because it's temporary, because we believe in an afterlife. We grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And so Paul, who was one who suffered greatly, he, he talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. He says, we are afflicted in every way. I mean, he's not trying to hide that. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Despair is when you just give up all hope. Persecuted, but not forsaken. God's with us during that time. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. One version says, we're knocked down, but we're not knocked out. We're not destroyed. And so you, you see the, the tension there. It's okay to admit, hey, I'm going through something really, really difficult. I'm, I'm, I'm being struck down, but I, I can get up again with the strength that God has in me. We're, we're never destroyed. We're not perplexed to the point of despair or forsaken. And then he says, for this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So even Paul, through the difficulties going through, calls it momentary, because it's always temporary, even if it's lifelong. And it's light affliction when you compare it with the weight of the glory that awaits us. And so that's a passage I often go to because it's just such a great, well-worded reminder of something that all of the biblical writers talk about, that we don't live for our best life now. If this is your best life now, you're living it wrong. You want your best life to be in the future. This is, with no exaggeration, your worst life. Your worst life is right now. No matter how good it is, it's still as bad as it's ever going to get. No matter how bad it is, it's as bad as it's ever going to get because your best life is awaiting you. And in this you rejoice that all of this eternal weight of glory is waiting for you and it's kept safe and you're kept safe and it's being guarded even though, yes, you're going through trials 
that are for a little while and is very grievous and they're very variegated. I think of trials as a, a telescope. You know, when you get a telescope, um, if you hold it the wrong way, then it makes everything seem very, very, very distant. But if you hold it rightly, then it brings distance objects closer. And your trial is like a telescope, and some people handle it wrong. They, they look at the trial wrongly, and so it makes heaven seem further. And it magnifies the, the trouble they're in right now. And they can't pry their, their minds and their hearts and their eyes off of what's going on in their life because heaven is so far away. But you should use your trial like a telescope and use it rightly so that it makes heaven feel closer. That it should make you long to be with Christ. Instead of dealing with everything that's going on here as if this is all that there is to it. This is just the momentary light affliction part. You've got to remember the eternal weight of glory. Use your trials as a telescope. But there's another particular here. So we see that the particulars of the trials are that they are temporary, that they are grievous, that they are variegated. Um, but then he says this, if necessary. This you rejoice that for a little while, as was necessary, or if necessary, you can translate it since it's necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And so this brings us to our second point. Necessary for what? So we looked at some particulars of trials. Now let's look at what I promised you I'd give you last week, the purpose of trials. Why do we even have them? What are they necessary for? Something, according to Peter, in trials makes, makes them necessary. They're required. Most people view trials like the, you know, the tonsil of the spiritual life or the appendix. It's like, we don't really know what it does. We don't really need it. But when it starts hurting, you just want to get it cut out, right? That's, that's what trials are. Uh, it, it's part of the Christian life. Yes, all Christians suffer, but we don't know exactly why. We just want them cut out when they start hurting. But, but Peter says, no, no, no. The trial is a critical organ. You need this. It's necessary. In this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while as was necessary. The comfort that we get from this is at least we know, according to Peter, trials are not random. They're not superfluous. They are profitable. They are necessary. They are required. There is a purpose. So last week I said, but why? If your salvation is secure and you can't lose it, and God knows from before you were born that you'll be in heaven, and he is the one that takes responsibility for making sure that you will get there, then why test you? And what does it look like to fail that test if I can't lose my salvation anyway? So this brings us to the purpose of trials and brings us to verse 7. So that, he's about to tell us, so you're rejoicing in your internal inheritance even though you're going through these trials. Yes, they're necessary. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's your reason. And in this reason, there's two purposes. The purposes of trial is to prove your faith and improve your faith. That's the purpose of any test that God gives you as a Christian, to prove your faith and improve your faith. The metaphor of gold here is an important one because, you know, we don't really deal with this much, um, but 
they would understand the way that you test if something's true gold or not is you put it in fire and, and the, the gold itself doesn't burn, the impurities burn. And so by testing fire, by, by testing gold in fire, you prove that it's true gold and the test itself actually purifies it and, make, and improves its quality as the impurities burn off. So that's kind of the image he's using. In the same way, your faith is like gold. In fact, he says your faith is obviously way more precious than gold. It's, it's priceless. It's your faith is that through faith is, is how God's keeping you saved. And to prove your faith, he tests it. And in the testing of your faith, like gold, he purifies it. He improves it. So he's proving your faith and he's improving your faith. But here's the million-dollar question. When I say that God is proving your faith, proving your faith to whom? Because we've already established God knows all things. He doesn't have to test you. He already knows what you would score. He knows if you're a believer or not. He chose you. So... Who's the test for? That's the question. I believe that the trials are there for you. Not for him. They're for you and for everyone else who doesn't know all things to know whether you're a Christian. I mean, remember when Jesus asks Peter, so Peter's writing this epistle, he's got to have this in his mind, you know, Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. But this is after the denial. So Jesus asks him again, because he denied three times, so Jesus is going to give him three times to affirm his love. And he asks him again, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus asks him a third time, do you love me? But Peter doesn't kind of realize what's happening and says he's grieved that, that Jesus asked him three times. And so in this, this sense of desperation of like, yes, I love you, I love you, and you're still asking me, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. So he appeals to the fact that, yes, I may have failed that test, but you know all things, and you don't have to ask me this question. You know what's in my heart. And so you know, doesn't matter what I say, you know that I do love you. And so the test isn't for Jesus to find out. The test, the test there was for Peter to be able to declare three times publicly that he loved Jesus after having denied him three times. The test was for him and for those around. And so the first purpose of the trial is to prove your faith, to put it on display as a witness of God's power. And you see this sprinkled in the New Testament. You know, Paul um, in Philippians 1.15 says that his suffering in you know, being in arrest with the Praetorian guard around him, the imperial guard. He says it's worked out for good because it has become known among the imperial guard. It is basically proving to them my faith. In First Thessalonians 1, Paul talks about this church in Thess Thessalonica that's suffering. And in, in verse 6 he says, You became imitators of us, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, difficulty, trials, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we, not, we need not say anything. 
So to the Thessalonians, he's saying, you, you received what I said to you in affliction, and it's gone out to the other churches. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he says again, in chapter 3, verse 5, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. What am I saying here? No, that's the wrong passage. Well, that's a good one. Sorry, verse, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, so it's being improved, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. There's the approving. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and afflictions that you're enduring. So again, the Thessalonians were going through something that caused Paul to be able to boast about their faith. Their faith was made known. Made known to others. Made known to them. The second reason for, for a trial, the second purpose is to improve it. The one is to prove that you're saved. And let me just explain what I mean by that when, to, before we move on to improve. Anyone can say they're a Christian, right? I mean, that's, that's a problem we encounter in a free country. Where calling yourself a Christian doesn't get you thrown in jail. So you can just call yourself a Christian because you want people to think you're a Christian. Because you want your parents to think you're a Christian or you know, polite society, all Christians, everybody at work's a Christian. So I'm a Christian. I go to church, whatever, I'm a Christian. So everyone's Christian. So there's people in here right now that call themselves Christians. So we, we don't know any different. And you might go many, many years not even knowing if you're truly a believer or not. Because you're like, yeah, I believe Jesus, you know, rose from the dead and all that stuff. But you've got secret sins that you're hiding. You've got unrepentant sin patterns. But you don't think much about those. But then a trial comes. A devastating trial. A difficult trial. Remember what our definition of a trial is? Anything that happens that you need God's grace to respond rightly. But if you're not a real believer, you don't have God's grace to respond rightly. So the trial shows that. And it shows you. So if you have a sponge and it's dipped in fresh water and you squeeze it, fresh water comes out. If you dip it in you know, Coca-Cola and you squeeze it, Coca-Cola comes out. It's the squeezing is the trial. The affliction. Whatever comes out of you in the affliction is how you know what's in you. And so I've seen this before where someone will come for counseling and they, they, they said to me that their business has gone under, they've lost all their money, they're, they're going to lose their house, you know, they're losing their relationships because of this. And I'll ask, well, how come you don't come to church, you know, etc. And then they'll say, I'm angry at God because of what he's done. I, want no I had a guy once sit in my office and tell me, I want nothing to do with a God like that. So this is a guy that had been going to church, wasn't our church, but he had been going to church. And he was sent to me for counsel and he had stopped going to church was embarrassed to go back to that pastor because he hasn't been there a long time. And here he's saying to me, the reason I stopped going to church, the reason I turned my back on the Lord is because he didn't give me what I wanted in my business, is what he was saying. So why do you think the Lord allowed that guy to lose his business? What good could come from that? He just walked away from church. Well, no. The failing business is what 
showed him that he would be willing to walk away from the Lord. If it hadn't happened, he'd still be there today thinking he's a Christian. And so one of the kindest things God can do to you is afflict you. Squeeze the sponge. So that when you see the pure water dripping out, you realize you're a believer. And if you see that temptation to walk away from Christ and to deny Christ and to be angry at God, that's a red flag for you. You need to make right with God. So that's what I mean by saying a trial proves your faith to you. We all know people that have been through devastating trials and they cling to Christ. They sing his praises. Even Job who lost everything and all of his children and all of his wealth and his own health and everything and and his, his wife just said to him, why don't you just curse God so that you can die and be done with this? And he rebuked her. You don't curse God. And by the end, he was still faithful. That's how you know you're a believer. Only once you've been proven. That's how you know your pilot is good. Only if he actually has to prove it through the trial. But secondly, it improves your faith. This is an important thing. It makes you more mature as you're going through it as a believer. So why does God test us if he knows we're saved? To make us more like Christ. So we become more useful. So we become more mature. Listen to how James says it. James 1 verse 2. Count it all joy. Same thing Peter's saying. In this you rejoice. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There's the necessity of trials. Not if you meet them, but when you meet them. There's the variegated nature of trials, various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It makes you more steadfast. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So that's James verse 1, uh, sorry, James 1 verse 2 through 4 is saying that you should be happy when you go through a trial. Yes, it's, it's necessary and it's variegated and it's grievous, but you need to count it joy. Why? Because it improves your faith. It produces the steadfastness. This, the steadfastness is the... Um, the perseverance of the saints in their salvation. That you know no one's snatching you out of Christ's hand no matter what you're going through. That's how you know you're a Christian. You turn your back on Christ in a trial and you were never a believer to begin with. So trials are used by God to make you more holy like Christ, more mature. Now, this is important. I'm going to read for you from Hebrews chapter 12. This is a very important concept. Because I said trials are anything that happens that you don't want, you know, stubbing your toe to getting cancer and everything in between. But I didn't mention something else. A trial can be a consequence brought on by your own sin. And people sometimes say, well, how do you know if what I'm going through is a trial sent from the Lord or it's a consequence of my own folly and my own bad decision making? And the answer is yes. Your consequences for your folly and your bad decision-making is a trial sent from the Lord to prove your faith and improve your faith. And this is where I get that from, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, meaning as children? And then he quotes that. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's from Proverbs 3.11. And then he says, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, our earthly fathers. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And then it says this, for the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, well, duh. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, when you do something wrong and you're a true believer, God disciplines you. He lets that sin come out to the light. He exposes that sin because he loves you. And that sin is what would drag you away from him. But he's dealing with it because it's his job to keep you in his grasp and keep you safe. And the way he does that is to get you to repent of sin. Because how do you go to hell? By unrepentant sin. How do you go to heaven? By repenting of your sin so that Jesus' blood covers it. If you don't repent of your sin, you're in unrepentant sin. That's bad. So God allows the trial give you an opportunity by exposing the sin to deal with it. And there's consequence of that sin. And the consequence might last your whole lifetime, and that's okay because every time you think of that consequence, you remember the sin and that it was bad and that sin lied to you and that temptation lied to you because now you've, it's given you this consequence instead of the pleasure it promised, which makes you cling to God. So if you are a true believer and you're hiding sin, God, if he loves you and you're a true believer, he will expose it to deal with it. And that's discipline. And he says, that discipline is painful for now. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It has a purpose. It's not just punishment. It's discipline to make you more like Christ. And so... Trials come from health, and trials come from other people, and you, you might be the victim of abuse, or you might be uh, the victim of an accident, or the weather, or, I mean, these trials come from all over, but another place trials come from is consequence for your own sin. But you treat all of that the same. You run to God. If God's the one disciplining you, you run to God. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said this, the sin is the tree that breeds the worm of affliction, which in turn eats the tree. You know, Puritans had a lot of time to come up with word pictures. But it's a good one. Your sin is like a tree that's breeding a worm, and then the worm eats the tree, right? So your sin breeds problems and consequences and difficulties and trials. That's what sin always does. But that trial, that difficulty is what eats up the sin, makes you repent of it. So if you are addicted to gambling and no one notices, you're just going to stay addicted to gambling and lose more and more and more and more money. And then eventually you lose your house. And then your wife divorces you. And then you lose your job. And in that state of absolute desperation, 
you finally realize, I have a problem. And I need help, and I need to repent. And then in the future, when you're tempted to gamble again, you remember what it did to you last time, and you stop doing it. And you, could, you could sub that sin for drunkenness, pornography, theft, anything. I mean, people steal all the time. One of the reasons Christians don't steal is because they always get caught. And it's not because Christians are just out of practice. It's because God wants Christians caught. So that you remember the consequence. So that you stop stealing. Because unrepentant sin is what leads to hell. Thomas Watson also says, Afflictions quicken our pace on the way to heaven. It's with us as children on an errand. If they meet apples or flowers, by the way, they linger, and they're in no great hurry to get home. But if anything frightens them, then they run with all speed they can to their father's house. So in prosperity, we gather the apples and flowers and do not give much thought to heaven. But as troubles begin to arise, then we make more haste to our father in heaven. Isn't that true? Where uh, you're just like a kid on an errand. You don't really want to go home. You want to smell the flowers. You want to eat the apples. You know, you want to linger at the video. My mom would send me to the, to the 7-Eleven to go and get, you know, bread and milk. And then I would have the, the change in my hand and I would go and play the arcade game. And like an hour later, she shows up. This was before cell phones. She shows up in her car like, why is it taking you an hour? We lived, you know, three minutes from the 7-Eleven. And I, I was like, I, I, I got distracted. But you know, when I would run home, there was this really mean, smelly, homeless dude that used to come into the same place sometimes and just kind of like leer at me. And then I would be done with whatever I'm doing and I'd run home. That's what he's saying. That's what, the, that's what trials are like. If everything's going well and there's prosperity in your life, then you're just like, woohoo, I'm just going to just hang out here with the flowers. But then a trial comes along and scares you and you run to God in prayer and you sort out your spiritual life. So I just want to also make the point that there's no such thing as a failed test. You can't fail these tests. It's kind of like an eye test. I always get nervous when I go to the optometrist because he keeps asking me, like, what is this line? And I'm like, I don't like failing tests. I like knowing all the answers to all the questions. And I just can't read that, so I'm like squinting. And he's like, it's okay if you can't read it. I'm like, no, I'll get it. And then I finally get it and, like, guess right or whatever. And then he's like, okay, now this line. And then I'm like, okay, fine, I fail. Yes, remind me, it's not a failure. We just need to know where you are. You can't fail an IQ test. It just tells you where you are. So these tests aren't to accomplish salvation or lose salvation. They don't, you don't win anything for passing the test. You can't lose anything for failing the test. The test is so that you can see where you land. Okay. I responded to the way an unbeliever responds. I guess I'm an unbeliever. Or, wow, that was a really hard trial. It was devastating. I hated it. I'm still in tears. I'm still, I have PTSD about it, but you know what? I'm clinging to the Lord. And you know who does that? Believers. So you're not accomplishing your salvation. You're proving it to yourself and to others. One more verse. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So he's saying in 1 John 2, 19, that the reason they left 
Christianity is to show that they were never Christians to begin with. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. But they, they went out, they left, they turned their back on Christ, that it might become plain that they were never of us. And the clearest illustration of the purpose of a trial in someone's life is Peter himself. Remember that chilling conversation that Jesus had with him? Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and that when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The trial planned by Satan was that fearful scenario which would tempt Peter to deny Christ. And Peter failed that test. But he didn't fail, did he? He just, it showed where he scored. Because he was saying, even if everyone else abandons you, I'll never abandon you. And then Jesus says, actually, you're going to abandon me three times before the cock crows. And Jesus knew beforehand that that was going to happen. So this isn't a test for Jesus. Jesus knows what's going to happen. This is a test for Peter to see. After those three times, Satan sifted me like wheat. But then what did he do? After you turn, after you return, after you repent, you're strengthened. And then go strengthen your brothers. So that trial proved to Peter that he needed God's grace to respond rightly. And that made him more like Christ and made him more useful to strengthen his brothers. Compare that with Judas. Judas falls into Satan's trap, is grievously regrettable about what happened, and yet doesn't repent. He turns his back on Christ and kills himself rather than seeking forgiveness. Two people both tested, and, and sometimes people say, how do you know if, you're being, if it's an attack of Satan or a test from the Lord? Well, here, here you have it. All attacks from Satan are still under the supervision of God. Go read the book of Job. So even, even an attack of Satan, it's, still, it's a test from God. And it wasn't for Jesus to see, it was for Peter to see. And so verse 7 in our text says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, instead of doing a whole sermon on that line, I'm just going to wrap it up with this explanation. It's a very, it's a very powerful statement, so stay with me. Part of proving and improving your faith is that when your faith is proven to you and others and it is improved, you become more like Christ. At the end, when Jesus comes back, that faith has a result. And the result is praise and glory and honor. There's a big debate. Is that talking about praise and glory and honor for Jesus? Because that would be the easy answer, but that's not actually what it says, is it? Maybe found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, this happens. So of course Jesus is going to get praise and glory and honor for keeping you saved. He's the one that was able to do that. But what this verse is actually talking about, and when I say it, you're going to be like, I don't know about that preacher. But um, John MacArthur says so too, so take it up with him. Um, this is talking about praise and honor and glory that you get when Jesus comes. That there is a 
a manifestation of the glory of God that you get to partake in because your faith is real. And, and we, all, we all say, and we know this concept when we say this, I, I want to wake up in glory and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's all I am. I'm just a slave of Jesus Christ. And if he finds me worthy of saying, well done, good and faithful, that's what I want. This is what this is talking about. If you get through all of this, you get the well done. That's the praise and the glory and the honor. So just meditate on this this week a little. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Who is the most famous, most beloved, revered, admired commercial airline pilot in the States, if not the world? Say it. Yeah, Sully. Sully Sullenberger. If you don't know about him, go Google him. It's fascinating. And the guy is amazing. And everybody knows him who knows about this. And, and everybody who knows about it loves him and admires him. And, and why? Because of Flight 1547. Flight 1547 on the 15th of January. What year did that happen in? Uh, 2009. Both of his engines were disabled by a bird strike. They flew into this flock of birds. Both engines stopped. And he immediately realized he didn't have power to get back to the airport or, or to the next airport to land. And so he makes this decision to do an emergency water landing on the Hudson River, which had never been done before. And yes, they've done it in simulators or whatever, but this is with 155 souls on board. And he makes this decision with no power. That means the plane from that moment on could only go down. It could not go up at all. And he does this calculation and makes this decision and he lands the plane on the river. And nobody died. And he waited till every single passenger and crew was off that plane, and then he went into the plane, and twice, making sure that no one was left behind, while the plane was sinking into the freezing cold Hudson River. Then he got off. And then everyone went ballistic. <laughs> they were like, this is the greatest hero ever. No matter where you fly, you want him to be your pilot. He got all sorts of awards. You can list there's like a whole webpage just full of the awards that he was given. And he was invited to the inauguration of President Obama. And he was given all, just every award you could think of. Everybody in New York. He, this guy never has to pay for a meal again. He never has to buy a drink again. Everywhere he walks, everyone's buying him drinks. Everyone's paying for his meal. Why? Because he kept calm and carried on. That's what he was known for. His calm and his poise. Mayor Bloomberg would call him Captain Cool. Now, was, it, was this an easy trial? No, he said that it was the worst. He said that as, as he decided to steer towards the river, it was the worst, sickening, pit of your stomach, fall through the floor feeling he had ever experienced. But it was the hundreds of smaller trials that he had been through that equipped him. He said that one way of looking at it might be that for 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits in this bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15th, the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. I love that picture. Every little trial that you go through, every time you get a flat tire, every time you spill coffee on your tie, every time you're late for an important meeting, every time any trial that happens, is preparing for you. It's improving your faith. So that when the bigger trials come, you've got this reserve 
of experience and wisdom and maturity to draw from. And in the end, the reason Sully gets so admired and so praised is because he passed that test. And there is praise and glory and honor waiting at the revelation of Jesus Christ for him who did this in us and for we who persevered and endured by his grace for his glory. And so every trial you go through is an opportunity to keep calm and carry on. Do the next right thing. Don't panic. Cling to your Savior. He is your only hope. And when you pass your trial, you'll be even more useful to strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, sometimes in life we feel like the engines are falling off. And yet we trust in you that we ought to just obey you and do the next right thing and lifted by your grace, for your glory, we live every day. And we know that there are those going through trials even now. Um, there are secret trials among us. There are small trials and very severe trials, grievous trials, Lord. I pray for each of us, whatever we're going through, that we would not focus on ourselves, but on you and on our eternal inheritance. And if there's anyone here today, Lord, that is failing the test because they're turning their back on you and not clinging to your truth, I pray that you will show that to them so that they can repent of their sin and make right with you and enjoy the, the wonderful grace of knowing that we are in Christ. And so it's because of his faithfulness that we can pray these things. Amen.